Check, check. All right. No PowerPoint today. I'm glad there's no applause. Okay. All right. I have to tell you, um, I shouldn't be surprised about this kind of thing anymore, but it always strikes me for some reason. Uh, as of last week, I thought I was done with this sermon. I thought, it's good, it needs a little tweak, maybe another verse here, change a word there, but I thought, it's, it's essentially done. And looking at it, I thought, Lord, what the heck? This, this doesn't fit. Why would you have me preach a sermon about this now? Because this idea came to me about six weeks ago. It didn't make sense then either. And then this last week happened. Now it makes sense. Because God knows. He knows. Boy, does he know. He knows what we need, and he knows when we need it, and he knows exactly what it is. Because this sermon is about grief. I was struck listening to the songs today. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart. I love that. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Any of you ever tuned an instrument? It's work, isn't it? I mean, you have to be listening carefully, watching carefully, special tools, right? Special parts that you don't use for anything else except to tune it. God does that with our hearts. Isn't that cool? Then there was strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. For the Lord is good. I will bless the Lord at all times my very present help in time of need here is love vast as the ocean I will exalt you holy is the Lord God almighty the path to heaven ends in the most amazing joy and peace indescribable but the beginning of the Christian walk requires facing the despair of our sinful state because if you don't realize you're sinful why do you need a savior see as Lewis said Christianity doesn't really speak to you until you've come to this point death and sin are important parts of our faith's foundational beliefs. As such, we mention them fairly regularly in teaching, preaching, singing, and action. But we're not always aware of the full meaning of death and sin and what they do to us. So this sermon will examine our inevitable emotional response to sin and death, grief, how it affects us and what it means. We will Hear from God's word what God has to say about grief and that grief is never the final word for a Christ follower. <coughs> grief is our word for our emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual response 
to an intense, overwhelming loss, often of a person we love, but it can also come from the loss of other things. Loss of a job or position or status after years of work. Loss of a relationship or connection after growing close or hoping to grow close. The death of a dream in which we put our hopes. Grief includes deep sorrow, a strong sense that something very wrong has happened, a violation of justice. It includes pain, sometimes acute, usually long-term emotional soreness and aching from a very real blow, a punch to our souls. A profound sense of loss and often loneliness as we struggle to accept that someone or something we counted on is now gone beyond our control. Now, as Christ followers, we have a source of help beyond ourselves in our grief that the world does not have. God is not limited as we are, and he can do the impossible. We may have hope when all visible hope is lost, and even if we still must let go, we have hope beyond this life, hope beyond imagination. Our God has promised us life after death. Death and grief must be waded through, but they are not our final destination. Salvation can be found in no other name, no other religion, no other philosophy or worldview. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life, as Peter pointed out in the Gospels. Did you know that God grieves? Sometimes we look at our Heavenly Father as if he's kind of removed, maybe a little distant from pains and cares and burdens of this life, but he isn't. He knows. How does he know? How can the only perfect being understand what it means to lose something good or someone you love or something you can't control? Isn't he all-powerful? Well, there is something God chooses not to control. Human wills. Us. He has a great influence upon us, but he doesn't force us to be his, does he? We have decisions to make and carry out. Our actions have sometimes permanent consequences. God honors us with his free will, though it may seem a high risk with great potential for disastrous consequences. God does it anyway. He was the perfect parent. Look at what happened to his kids. Look at what we've done to his perfect world. Every injustice, every pain, every loss, in every life, every life that ever lived, he feels, for it is an offense against him. So he knows. He knows. At the tomb of Lazarus, they saw that Jesus wept. See how he loved him, they said. Remember the widow of Nain. How Jesus saw her tears, had compassion on her, raised her son back to life right there in the middle of the procession to the cemetery. How many times was that story told around town? 
Remember how Jesus looked around at the scribes and the Pharisees and others who were upset that he was healing on the Sabbath and was grieved at the hardness of their hearts? You think your heart has been hurt by the hardness of this world? You think no one understands the pain you have? Someone does. And better than you understand it because he's witnessed every pain in every life since day one. So God knows our grief. He understands what we go through when we grieve. And it matters to him. Grief is inherently a part of sin. But it was not inherently a part of God's creation. We're to blame for it. We sinned. Death, disease, grief, and a great many other things were allowed into the world. As such, it is also one of those things we will not have to keep when we die in which Jesus will dispatch permanently on that great day when we enter the new heavens and the new earth. He will be dispatching it from us and presumably from himself too. It's a neat thought, isn't it? God will not have to grieve anymore either. He's in it with us for the duration. But for here and now, grief has a purpose. Grief does several things. First, grief reminds us of how profound the effects of sin really are. Our sin matters. Its effects matter. We should not take our sin lightly. We cause others to have to deal with grief when we sin. God not the least. This is what Jesus suffered on the cross. In addition to his profound physical torture in order to redeem us and bring us home. Indeed, this seems to be the primary theme of God's narrative of history, the rescue plan for humanity, the solution to the problems of sin and death and the grief that goes with them. So our grief is supposed to help us remember the truth that we need a Savior because sin is a big deal. And Jesus suffered in order to be that Savior. Second, grief is intended to change us on the inside. We can fight that change. We can ignore it. But grief, like everything else in this life, is God's tool to shape us, to transform us, to make us like himself, able to feel the pain of others. We are ineffective friends unless we have some idea of the pain our friends are going through. Grief is the doorway to compassion. And we must learn compassion. Therefore, we must learn to grieve in order to be like our Father. Anyone who's been through real grief will tell you grief is work. It's like a part-time job or possibly a full-time job that your mind, your soul, and your body are occupied with while you try to live your normal life. Guess what? It's exhausting. Healthy grieving includes taking some time off for the very real effort that grief requires from us. Even if your conscious mind isn't doing anything about your grief, your heart is, and that's work. 
It uses energy, and you can't stop it. So you have to make room for it in your expectations. You can't keep going on as if nothing has happened. You must make changes, or the changes will make you unable to grow fully, sick in soul. Does it seem incongruous that you can feel both grief and gratitude at the same time? Sometimes our feelings are not very clearly defined, or there are so many, we are sometimes hard-pressed to sense which is dominant at the moment. It's part of the beauty and the difficulty of being human. We're not machines. We are able to hold contradictory ideas and feelings at once. We can have gratitude in the midst of grief. We can laugh and cry at the same time. We can have hope in the midst of despair. We can forgive when it is not deserved. Love when it is not returned. And give when we expect nothing in return. Because our God did the same for us and lives in us to help us. So grief reminds us of the truth about sin and death. And it changes us to be more like our Father more able to help others. Third, grief keeps us from loving this world too much. We need reminding that the very comfortable standard of living in this country is not all there is. We need help to keep ourselves in the world, but not of it. Not trying to serve two masters. Not allowing the cares of this life to choke out the good seed of the word. We're sometimes easy to deceive. We sometimes get very caught up in preserving our health, our possessions, our lifestyles, our wealth, our positions, and many other things that matter so little compared to our eternity with the Lord. And we know that. But we get distracted by things, don't we? We need reminders. Grief is one of them. A lot of those other things become very small and meaningless in the face of disappointment, pain, and loss. We see, again, what is really important in this life and what isn't. So, grief is a reminder of the nature of sin and the love of our Savior. Grief is an experience that changes us to be more compassionate, like our Father. And grief unravels our hearts from all the temporary things of this life, allowing our hearts to reattach what is everlasting and truly important. Last, grief is a way to honor what is important. If nobody grieved, then nobody cared. And whatever was lost didn't matter. But if people showed grief, then that thing or person or dream which was lost must have been important. Must have mattered. Showing honor is important, not just when it's deserved as a way to be respectful or courteous, but it's important when it's a surprise, too. When no one expects it, our grief shows where our heart truly lies. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and your grief will show it. There's a lot of grief in the Bible. Peter grieved for the death of his integrity. 
Mordecai grieved for his people. Samuel grieved for Saul. David grieved for his lost son Absalom. Jesus grieved at Lazarus' tomb. According to some translations, at the idea of death itself. Our God mourns that we must suffer. He collects our tears in a bottle. But who collects his? When he was sweating like drops of blood, pouring out his soul to his Father, who comforted him? His disciples slept, fled, and betrayed him. So he knows our grief, and it matters to him. So since our God grieves with us, and grief has purposes, let's examine the mechanics of grief. You may have heard of the commonly accepted stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. But did you know they don't necessarily happen in order? Some people even skip some stages. It's not linear, and it's not predictable. There's no way to tell how grief will affect you or someone else until it does. Each stage takes its own time. And these stages don't ask our permission to overtake us, nor do they line up to take turns, nor do they have defined limits or expiration dates. It can feel helpless and powerless to go through them, even if they're valid and affirmed. What I find fascinating about these stages is that a similar theme exists two other places we probably wouldn't associate with grief, at least not right away. Our statements when we're caught in sin and the methods of opposition used by our enemy. Let's think about it. When kids are caught doing wrong, what are some of the things they say? I didn't do it. Denial. You're being mean. Anger. Just this once. Bargaining. You never, you're always. Depression. And maybe, hopefully, as they mature, yeah, you're right. I did wrong. Acceptance. Now, why is it that we find these stages of grief in our excuses? Well, I like the idea that our sin is so painful, so disgusting to our spirits to see in all its ugliness that we try everything we can to shift the blame, to minimize it, to avoid having to admit that we created something we hate so much. And sin is something God hates even more, not just for what it is, but for what it does to the ones He loves. Our efforts to get out of punishment, to find an excuse, are an indication of how real the guilt is how much we know we need a Savior. Praise God we have one. One who loves us even beyond our excuses. Have you noticed when once we decide to stand for Christ and with Christ, our enemy comes against us? He may use denial or doubt. Did God really say? If you are the Son of God. 
We may use intimidation or the anger of those who oppose us. How many times does God have to tell his people, don't be afraid? Fear not. Don't let your heart be troubled. You know why he has to tell us these things? Because we get afraid, don't we? We get scared. We get intimidated. Our Our enemy may use bargaining, bribing, corrupting, turning a blind eye, or the cares of this life. The deceitfulness of riches is one of the thorns and briars that make the good seed in the parable unfruitful. Or he may use depression, the notion that nothing is changing, the perception that all of our efforts are worthless, that the way it is now is the way it will always be to prevent us from moving forward according to God's will. So even our excuses and the enemy's tactics point to the powerful meaning of grief and the consequences of sin and the powerful God who overcame it all. So since that same God grieved himself and assisted the grieving, how shall we follow his example? How shall we respond to our own grief and that of others? And what about potential grief? Circumstances that hang in the balance. The Bible says that no one knows the joys or griefs of a heart as truly as the one who actually experiences them. So we'll start there. That's where Job's friends started. Now they get a bad rap for their condemnation of Job, but they began well. They saw how traumatized he was after losing everything. Everything. But his wife and his life, it's all he had. So they just stayed with him, silent, for seven days. Not a word. Because it says they saw his grief was very great. There really weren't any words to say, so they didn't. Sometimes grief is too strong for words. So we offer what we can, what we have. Our presence, our assistance with the unrelenting demands of life that doesn't stop for grief. We also offer space and grace for the grieving to proceed as it will, free from regulation. Some grieving simply must be done alone. My favorite strategy for my own grief is David's from the Psalms. He pulls no punches in expressing the full spectrum of feelings common to man, including all the stages of grief. There are psalms with denial, psalms with anger, psalms with bargaining, psalms with depression, and psalms of acceptance. David always brings his mind and his pen back to God and the truth he knows about God's character every time. He does not wait to feel better before going to God. He doesn't wait for circumstances to change or for a word or for anything else. He says exactly what he feels. And then he makes himself remember what he knows and believes in spite of what he feels. Job does the same. Many of the horrendously destructive prophecies in the Old and New Testaments have gratitude embedded in them. Jesus in the garden prayed, I am sorrowful unto death, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, 
not my will, but thine. Still the trust in his father's character. There's an interesting story in the Old Testament about what to do when grief seems probable, but not inevitable. In 2 Samuel, God tells David through Nathan the prophet that the son he fathered in an adulterous moment with Bathsheba will die. And David pulls out all the stops. He fasts. He prays. He changes his clothes. He does everything he knows to seek God's favor. Because he doesn't know the future beyond doubt. God has shown he is willing to relent from judgment and that God can even bring back the dead. So what did he have to lose? He kept hope as long as the child lived because he hoped in God. After the child died and David was made aware of it, he did a hard thing. He moved on. He washed, he dressed, he ate. He actually went and worshiped God. He did what he was famous for doing. He returned to the God whose heart he was after. And he comforted his wife. He knew he wasn't the only one grieving the loss of the child. So while the end is in doubt, we fight for it with all our hearts. We believe in the God of miracles who even raises the dead. If in the loss or the death or the final decision we don't get what we want, we go straight to the God who knows grief like no other, who comforts us, comforts us in our grief even though there was no one to comfort him, who has plans for us beyond our circumstances for our good. We go to him. We spill it all. Let it all out, all the feelings and thoughts, and let him guide us through them. The irony in the phrase from the Peanuts comic strip, good grief, is what creates the humor for which it is used. But what if it is good? What if grief and all that it entails works for our good through the loving God who goes through it with us and went through it for us? What if God can even redeem our deepest, most painful grief and use it for our good? What if even facing potential grief is part of his plan to transform us? In the Lord of the Rings trilogy by Tolkien, Samwise Gamgee awakes unexpectedly after losing most of what he cared about in a long and dangerous journey to find that he has not died. His friends have survived. The war is won, and so many wrong things have, put right, have been put right. He exclaims, is everything bad going to come untrue? Profound. I'm not sure I can say it any better than that. Untrue, as in no longer reality, no longer in existence, no longer in power, no longer to be found. Remember the line from the Christmas carol, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That ain't just whistling Dixie. That will happen. Everything bad will come undone, untrue, unreal, unmade, unable to exist in the presence of life and goodness itself. 
Grief is a requirement in this life. But strong as it is, hard as it is, our God is stronger still. Good always overcomes evil because God is good. He's not done with us. So let us put our hope and our trust in him and his goodness. Goodness, even in grief. I'm going to show a video, lyric video, that Bill made for me when I asked him. He does a great job with those. It's a song by Andrew Peterson, and it's called Always Good. And she fell at your feet If it's true that you know what I'm feeling Could it be that you're weeping with me Arise, oh Lord, and save me There's nowhere else to go
you are always good. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God bless you. Have a great day, and hopefully we'll see many of you tonight.